You're listening to a message from Third Church in Richmond, Virginia, where we believe we are called together for the renewal of all things through Jesus Christ. To learn more about Third or how you can get involved with our community, please check out our website, thirdrva.org. That's T-H-I-R-D-R-V-A dot org. Thanks for listening. We are excited this morning to have Jennifer Parham reading our selection of scripture this morning. Today's scriptures are from Galatians 5 and John 16. From Galatians 5, verses 22 and the first part of verse 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And from John 16, verses 16 through 22. Jesus went on to say, In a little while, you will see me no more. And then after a little while, you will see me. At this, some of his disciples said to one another, what does he mean by saying, in a little while, you will see me no more. And then after a little while, you will see me. And because I'm going to the father. They kept asking, what does he mean by a little while? We don't understand what he is saying. Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this. So he said to them, Are you asking one another what I meant when I said, in a little while, you will see me no more, and then after a little while, you will see me? Very truly, I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come, but when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So with you, now is your time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning, church. My name is Derek. I'm one of the pastors here at Third, and we are in the midst of a sermon series called The Church in a Time of Crisis. In many ways, this past year has been revealing. It has revealed what lies beneath the surface in us, in our families, in our communities, and in our culture at large. And what we have discovered, what God has disclosed, what he has shown us is that underneath the surface of our lives is what Paul calls the flesh, our fallen human impulses and behaviors. And what are we supposed to do as God's covenant people, when he shows us things like this. I loved Corey's sermon a few weeks ago, where he said, we we pray and we repent and we cooperate with the Holy Spirit that he might produce new fruit in us. So that's really the heart of this series. We are exploring the fruit of the Spirit each week alongside of a gospel text. And what we hope is that you'll discover that the fruit of the Spirit are not just a random set of Christian virtues, Instead, they are a new life, not one marked by the flesh, but one marked by the righteous life of Jesus Christ himself. So our theme for this week is joy, joy in a time of cynicism. And we're going to do just three things today. Uh, We're going to look at what is the antithesis of joy? What is it that resists joy? We're going to look at uh, what is the nature of joy? So what does the Bible say about joy and how does that uh, shape the church? 
change what we think of when we think of joy. And then finally, we're gonna talk about the cultivation of joy. How through posture and practices might we be able to become a community that bears the fruit of God's joy together? So let's start with the antithesis of joy. Now, each week as we look at a fruit of the Spirit, we are going to look at also a vice that contrasts that fruit. What is it in us, in our culture around us, that resists the fruit of joy? Well, the the contrasting vice of joy is cynicism. Cynicism is defined by the Oxford Dictionary this way. It is the belief that people only do things to help themselves or the belief that something good will not or cannot happen. At its heart, cynicism is about a suspicion of good, of good in the world, of good in the others. But cynicism goes deeper than that. I love the way that Soren Kierkegaard captures this, this suspicion of the good. Listen to this quote. There is a shrewdness which almost with pride, he says, presumes to have a special elemental knowledge of the shabby side of existence. It's the idea that everything finally ends in wretchedness. What Kierkegaard is saying is is that what makes cynicism so powerful is that it can call into question all of the things that we value in life. It presents to us a world that is only bent and broken. It's an intentional spiritual blindness. It's a refusal to see the world for all that it is and and all that it could be in order to protect oneself from pain and from disappointment. For the Christian cynic, it's like saying that the Bible begins in Genesis 3 and ends in Revelation 20. I don't know if you know your Bibles, but that is a bad news to bad news story. <laughs> that, is, that is the fall from sin and judgment at the throne of God. But if that is your functional Bible, and it is if you're a cynic, it forgets critical things. It's only missing four chapters, but it's missing the whole story. It forgets that the world was created good. It forgets that humans are made in the image of God. And yet that image is marred by sin but it is not erased. It forgets that human power is not by nature evil. It is actually a human good given to us in the garden. And it forgets that the ark of the renewal of all things, that is the ark of history, whether we like it or not. Cynicism requires us to just see part of the story of God's work in the world. And it asks us to see the world without the eyes of God, without hope for renewal. Now, no, nobody starts there. Nobody's ever said to me, Derek, you know, the way I really want to see the world is without the eyes of God, filled with judgment and wretchedness. No one, no one starts there. No one thinks that. But make no mistake, brothers and sisters, cynicism is, is one of the foundations of a, of, a, of a new and emerging American ethic. It is, it is in who we are, and it is dangerous. One political scholar puts it this way. He says, um, if Americans are as cynical as the data indicates, then the public fabric of American democracy is either shredding into pieces or is about to. Hasn't it felt like that in the last year? The fabric of society, fabric of our common life. 
is shredding into pieces. And that is sad, but I'll, I'll be honest, I have felt often like the fabric of my own family in my own house in the last year is, is shredding into pieces. The, the, the pandemic has landed hard, has fallen hard on a lot of our families, on my family. It has fallen hard on our family. It has taken a toll. And in the midst of such overwhelming stuff, it is easy for a, the, the culture of suspicion that is, that, that, that cynicism demands, it demands a culture of suspicion. That suspicion gets cast on God. It gets cast on every institution or community we are a part of, gets, gets cast on even our most intimate relationships. It, it is, it, I'm honest, this has been a hard thing for me. I am an optimist at heart. Most people you know me, they're like, Derek is not a cynic. The, the, it, is, it has been nipping at the edges of my soul all year, cynicism has. Three weeks ago, one of my groomsmen died to COVID. No uh, real comorbidities. Um, this is uh, some, one of the first people that I started walking with Jesus. We just found out this week, one of my wife's oldest friends, Maggie, her cancer's come back. Um, it's stage four, it's spread everywhere. It is, it is not good. And it has just felt relentless at some levels. And it is easy in the midst of that for us to begin to suspect, suspect the goodness of God is not real. Is this a fairy tale? Is this even real? Those are the things that we can begin to believe and cynicism will find its root in us. I don't know if you guys ever do this. This is one of the ways that we struggle with it as a family. You know, uh, good things start to happen. Like something really, really good happens for us. And it's almost as if we, we withhold celebration and joy because, because we're scared. Like, well, but when's the other foot gonna drop? Do you know what I mean? That, that is cynicism. That is a spirit of cynicism taking root, that, that, that God isn't good, that he's withholding. But that's where we often find ourselves. One of the places where cynicism at church is most destructive is in our most intimate relationships. And, and this is the way that I would describe it. I, I see the spirit of cynicism eating at us from the inside when we give up on each other. When we just decide to write the end of the story for someone else without the grace of God. I, I find it in phrases like, he's, he's never gonna change. He's always gonna be that way. Or in the fear that rises up, I can't, I can't trust myself to anybody else again. It is just too painful to open myself up. I know that they're gonna fail me. You find it in the ways that we retreat into our own echo chambers, where we just gather with our own tribes so that we can be safe. And, and what we're doing when we tell someone, you know, I, I'm just never gonna trust him again. He's failed me. And I'm, I'm embittered. I'm just gonna be unreconciled. But we're saying essentially in all of those things is you're dead to me. I'm done with you. And, and this is ultimately, church, how we see that cynicism is at its heart an enemy of the gospel because it says grace ends here. Jesus's ability to transform their hearts, it ends here. The Spirit's ability to move in my situation, it ends here. And this is how cynicism divests the world of grace. It seeks to choke out the hope of the gospel before it takes its root in us. In contrast to cynicism, Jesus envisions a future for his disciples in this passage that is marked by joy. So it begs the question, what is the nature of joy? What does the Bible say 
about joy? What does it mean when it says joy? We'll we'll jump into, we'll go real quick through this. The the word joy appears a lot in your scriptures. So there's about 155 times in the Old Testament, roughly 63, 64 in the New. Paul uses uh, the word 21 times in particular in his letters. And and here's here's what's amazing and remarkable about the biblical record. Despite all of those references, almost with complete consistency, the key to, to joy in most of these passages involve two factors. First, it is a, a reminding ourselves of the faithfulness and the goodness of God. And it is a hope in the future salvation that will come. Those two elements are critical to what the Bible has to say about joy. I also love the way C.S. Lewis captures this idea. He says, joy is a byproduct its very existence presupposes that you desire not it, but something other and outer. I love that phrase, something other and outer. This means you can't find joy by looking for it. Isn't that interesting? You cannot find joy by looking for it. We only discover joy when we are seeking something else outside ourselves, something other. Joy is the satisfaction that comes when you find that thing for which you have been looking. So where do we see this idea developed in the Old and New Testaments? In the Old Testament, this is absolutely a summary. And so I'm going to go fast. In the Old Testament, you can think about it this way. Joy is what happens when when God finally does the thing that his people desire the thing that they have been waiting for. You see it in the, uh, the Exodus. You see it in the exile. Uh, in, in the Exodus, it's the joy of deliverance. It's the joy of covenant relationship with God. It's the joy of a, of a land that was promised. In the exile, it's the joy of, of being able to return home. It's the joy of, of a temple being rebuilt. Joy is what the people of God experience when God does the thing that he promised he would do. And it goes deeper in the Old Testament than that. The Old Testament prophets actually believed that God one day was going to flood the world with justice and with joy. And this is why in the Old Testament, joy is connected so deeply with God's saving acts, his redemptive work on Israel's behalf, behalf. Uh, Isaiah 35.10. And those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them and sorrow and sighing will flee away. Isaiah 65 puts it this way. See, I will create a new heavens and a new earth. Former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind, but be glad. Rejoice forever in what I will create, for I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. A joy in the Old Testament is, is, is the, the people of God. It's what they experience when God does what he has promised he will do. And this idea carries all the way over into the New Testament because it is one story. So according to Paul, you know how the Old Testament prophets, we just said, They believed that one day God was going to flood justice and joy into the world. Well, Paul says that day has come. Actually, it began in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so in the New Testament, Jesus carries 
on his shoulders the entire weight of the world, brings it through death to the other side into new creation. And it is, it is that life, that resurrection life, that new creation life, that in the church, the people of God are able to experience through the spirit. This also is why in the New Testament, joy is tied to salvation, whether it's the healing of a body, the restoration of a family, as someone being brought to wholeness, there you will find the word joy. Whether it's the, the act of conversion itself, Acts 8, Acts 16, John 4, Acts 15, anytime Jesus went almost anywhere, you're going to see the word joy. Think about it. This is also so beautiful. Jesus pushes us further. When he decides to tell one story for the Pharisees to most capture what God is like, he tells the story of a dad who shreds his life to bring home wayward sons and daughters. This isn't just what God does, it's who he is. And joy for the people of God is, is, is always captured in, in our participation and experience of him doing what he promised to do, of salvation breaking into the world. I think Corey's the first person I heard say this, but I love this equation. Um, memory plus hope equals joy. Isn't that good? Memory of God's goodness, of his faithfulness, plus the hope of future salvation equals joy. That is a great summary of joy in the scriptures. I want to share a picture with you. Ellen Dirksen uh, is in this picture, so I apologize, Ellen. <laughs> Uh, this is actually, I wanted to share with you just a snapshot of joy from the last couple of weeks for me. Uh, this is my son, Jeremiah's, a picture from his uh, eighth birthday party. It happened on January 20th. And um, this is, uh, this marks joy for me because in our family, uh, Jeremiah is the one I know who's had the hardest time with this pandemic. The way I am so proud of him. I know that he's watching. And so I love you, Jeremiah. Daddy loves you. I'm proud of you. The way that the stress of this has worked its out in his little seven-year-old body has just been so hard to watch. But I've been so proud of him in the ways that he is, um, has, 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 has approached that in our family. It's been beautiful. What was so great about this was um, we got to have an, an actual birthday party. These are people that are bubbled with us. <laughs> and so um, we actually were able to do a surprise birthday party. So I took Jeremiah to Chick-fil-A. I, I think I told him, Daddy's got to do something special with you. But I, I, forgot, <laughs> I forgot to choose something special. So we just went to Chick-fil-A. <laughs> I needed to be away so that while they set up the surprise. And at, we're, in, we're in my Jeep eating the French fries. And he goes, so Daddy, what was like the special thing you wanted to do with me? <laughs> This is it, Jeremiah. This is the special thing. I just wanted to be with you. And he's like, oh, okay, I get that. That's good. So we come back, but we come back and there's just this surprise. The kids were hidden everywhere. And it was just a moment of, it was just a reminder. Even, even I thought some of the words of this passage. Oh, you know what? A day is coming soon where we're going to be able to be back together. Where surprise birthday parties are not going to be the rarity of, of our lives, but that we'll be able to be with one another again. It was this beautiful mark of joy. And, and honestly, um, the reason why I have this picture is like there are neighbors in this picture on the bottom left, that's Ross, Elizabeth, and Sophie. Uh, they're not church folk. Um, um, and yet they are a, they're a part of our family. 
And then you've got people like Ellen. Ellen, Ellen has taught my kids how to cook something for two hours every Thursday afternoon, and then they come home with food to my house. <laughs> That's Jesus, people. That is Jesus. Um, but we, we could not get through our lives without people like this. And it's a vision of parish life. It's why I'm a pastor here, right? We've got the church and neighbors dwelling together. It is, it is for me, it captures a moment of joy. It holds for me the memory, right? And the hope that gives me joy. So, so, so if, if, this is, if this is what joy is like, how do we become a community that cultivates this fruit? How does it happen? I wanna talk about a posture, and, and practices as we close. So first, when we, when we talk about posture, what I really mean is we need to talk about the relationship between joy and suffering if we're going to be a community that really cultivates joy. Because in my heart, in our, it is often an obstacle. It's hard to understand. How do they relate to one another? I like the word posture because I'm a wrestler. And so in wrestling, uh, it is very important to not let your opponents take you down. And so posture is critical in takedown defense. There are six ways that I can defend myself. My head, my shoulder, my hands, elbows, my hips, my knees. And my posture is, is critical in being able to meet my opponent's attack on my terms, right? That's the whole point of posture. And I think, I think there's something in that for us when we think about a, a spiritual posture and a spiritual sense, our posture towards suffering. I think if, if we can understand the relationship between joy and suffering, I think it helps posture ourselves so we experience sorrow and loss on God's terms, right? In God's way. And so you know, for most of my life, I wanted to define joy as the absence of pain. Every definition I would have thought of, that that's what came to my mind. Well, joy has got to be the absence of suffering. But that's actually not true in the Christian story. A fundamental characteristic of Christian joy is that it is experienced even in the midst of great tragedy and sorrow. In our text, we see this, this come out so beautifully in our passage. In the mind of Jesus, joy is not incompatible with suffering at all. He names the presentness of suffering so many times and ways in this passage. First, there's the pain of separation. You will not see me. I'm going to be with the Father. I love the disciples here because they're like, what do you think he meant when he said he's going to leave us? I mean, he's as, he's as clear as it could be. <laughs> I'm going to leave you. Well, he clearly couldn't mean that he's going to leave us, right? Uh, and so he had to like, okay, well, I'll tell you the story. now. I'm going to leave you. Like, what? When did you say that? Just a second ago. Um, so, but that, that, literally, that pain of separation is, is all over this text. The pain of despairing loss you will weep and lament at what is about to happen. He does not shy away from that. The immediacy of pain, he says, now, now your season of sorrow is beginning. Then there's even the enduring nature of pain where we see him talk about um, the metaphor of childbirth as a metaphor for whether you're going to experience most, nine months, <laughs> eras of pain and then a moment of joy. He's being really clear about the enduring nature that, and so what I love about this is that there is no stoic denial of suffering for the Christian. But even as Jesus names pain and suffering for the disciples, he, he asks them to fix their hope on a joy, on the promise 
of a joy deferred. He, you will see me again. You will rejoice. You are going to suffer, but your grief will be turned to joy. And my favorite one, you will experience a joy that will never be taken from you. So for us as the followers of Jesus, our posture is it's not an escape from suffering, but joy is a promise that we can find in the midst of it. Amen? And finally, I wanna talk about just a couple of practices. There are dozens, and I'm sure there are people in this room even who could, who could share better practices. I'm gonna share two that have been transformative to my life and have helped foster joy. I love this quote by George MacDonald. He is um, sort of a mentor to both Lewis and Tolkien, and his books are incredible. Um, but he says this, but we who would be born again indeed must wake our souls unnumbered times a day. So as we walk through this, well, how many times do you think I should do? Unnumbered times a day <laughs> until the heart is formed to joy. That's the beauty of practices. We participate with the spirit in becoming more of who he's called us to be. So the first practice is a practice of resistance. Well, something that help us push against um, cynicism. And, and really, it's, it's about renouncing and repenting. And so, um, and they're tied deeply together. Uh, I want to encourage us to um, take some time in the coming week and re renounce the spirit of cynicism. It has a spiritual hold in your heart. Uh, the Bible talks about principalities and powers. We can't just think our way out of some of this stuff. And so, and I mean, I've taught renouncing prayer to my children. I mean, they, they have, for the first time this year, started saying really bad things about themselves. I'm the worst, I'm evil, I'm bad. We've never called them that. And so what do we do? We sit with a seven-year-old and a 10-year-old and we teach them how to renounce a spirit of cynicism, a spirit of despair, whatever that is. So, so what, when you just sit down, it's not that complicated. You just sit in the Lord's presence. And you say, I renounce the spirit of cynicism that asks me to doubt everything good in the world. Spirit of God, would you fill my heart with your joy? It is that simple. How many unnumbered times a day? <laughs> I pray it sometimes as I go into a meeting. I pray it after I leave a meeting. I pray it sometimes when I'm going in to hang out with my children. <laughs> I mean, like unnumbered times a day. And as we enter into Lent, I want to encourage us, what if this season of Lent was a sustained season of repenting and moving away from cynicism? So that's the first one, re renouncing and repenting of our cynicism. The second is a practice of embrace, a practice of celebration. Just as cynicism demands suspicion, well, Joy demands celebration. It demands practices that lead us in that way. One of the, the passages of scripture that I love the most that form these practices of celebration comes from Lamentations 3, 20 through 24. My soul is downcast within me, yet I call this to mind. And therefore I have hope because of the Lord's great love. We are not consumed for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. And so a practice of celebration, what it seeks to do is to help you connect with the deep heart 
gladness. It helps you to remind yourself of the active work of God saving, even in mundane, ordinary things. And so this is, this is my encouragement to you as a practice. I want you to do this over dinner. I think doing this over meals in the company of others is the best way to do it. So maybe it's once a week with a friend or it's nightly, even with your children. Think of it as an examine of, of gratitude, of celebration. And there's just these two questions. So you can write them down and I'll give you time to do that. The first question is this. And I want you to ask it and then just wrestle it down together as a group, okay? What is one thing that brought you deep gladness today or this week if you're meeting with them weekly? Now, and the answer is, I don't, you, you can't say, I don't know. That's the one rule. The one rule is, I don't know. Because here's what's going to happen. You're going to like just be working through the strata of cynicism. <laughs> you know, because you, you might sit there and be like, I don't know if I have anything that I'm deeply glad about. Okay, well, then just keep thinking until you do. All right, that's part of the work of the practice. So that's the first question. What is, what is one thing that, that, that has brought deep gladness to you? And the second is, where did you see or remember God's faithfulness today? Where did you see or remember God's faithfulness today? And together, these postures and these practices, they, over time, they will produce the fruit of joy. You will find your judgment and your cynicism and your despair just dropping off of you in time. Because you can't sit in a community of people and name the salvation and the joy and the goodness and the hope of God over and over and have it not slowly start to seep into your heart. And so these practices might be simple, but they are profound in their trajectory for our lives. So um, a final word <laughs> about joy together. I love, just fix that in our minds that, that joy is the combination of memory and hope, right? Remembering God's faithfulness. But the kind of life that we just described, church, it's impossible if Jesus is not the joy of your life. The only way it is possible is if Jesus himself is the joy of your life. He's the thing you've always been longing for and looking for. And death cannot rob you of the joy that Jesus gives. Why? Because the one who is our joy has tasted death. He's come through the other side. And that new creation life, he is waiting for us. We will see him one day. And after he brings every single one of us through our own deaths, he will welcome us into a resurrection life. That's why against the spirit of cynicism, Jesus is asking you, asking us as a church to see the world through the joy-stained eyes of God, eyes of a savior who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. Why? So that we might know a world where wretchedness ends. It is a world that is being unbent and unbroken even now by the power of the gospel and the coming of the kingdom of God. It is Jesus's world, church. And it is a world that one day will be overcome by a joy that never fades. Let us pray. Jesus, oh Jesus, we need you so much. Um, we ask that you would excise from our spirits
every trace of cynicism and doubt and judgment. So we are asking for grace that we don't have, courage that we don't have. And we know that by living into the joy that you have for us, seeing the world with your joy-stained eyes, that it will open us up to hurt potentially, more fears, more disappointments. But we would rather embrace the world that you love with joy and hope than to see our world divested of God's grace and goodness. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, one beautiful way that we get to respond immediately to the word is through the reciting of the Apostles' Creed together, one of the gifts of this series. And what I, what I love about it is that it is, it is holding within itself both the tension of memory of God's faithfulness and who God is and our future hope and salvation in these words. And so would you join me, church, by reciting the Apostles' Creed together? Christians, what do you believe? I believe in God the Father, almighty maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Well, um, church, we get to participate in um, a beautiful act, one of the oldest acts of Christian celebration that we know of here right now as we come to the Lord's table together, a place by the body and blood of Jesus where the memory of God's faithfulness and the hope of his salvation is bound up together. <laughs>